used to call this a Christian country. Uh, did you realize that up until 1888, church going was a legal obligation uh, in this land? By law, you should attend church at least once on the Sunday. It wasn't a law that was enforced, and if I may say that was a good thing, it wasn't enforced, but it gives you some idea of how the Christian faith was supposed to be at the heart of this nation. Uh, and indeed, up until earlier this year, it was a legal requirement that every Anglican church, I don't know about Episcopal churches or the Church of Scotland, but it was a requirement that they should provide one Sunday service, every single one of them. But that's no longer in force. You see, the markers to this being described as a Christian country have long gone. A guy called Damien Thompson, writing in The Spectator magazine in 2015, wrote this. 2067, that is the year in which the Christians who have inherited the faith of their British ancestors will become statistically invisible. The Church of England is declining faster than other denominations. Actually, if I could just tie in, actually, the Church of Scotland uh, is declining faster than the Church of England. If it carries on shrinking at the rate suggested by the latest British Social Attitude Survey, Anglicanism will disappear from Britain in 2033. One day, the last native-born Christian will die, and that will be that. In fact, in Scotland today, out of a population of five and a half million people, only 350,000 people regularly attend church. To put that into some sort of perspective, there was a football match, you've already referenced it, and I can see walking past outside some of the uh, fans, disappointed fans, walking along. 66,000 were at Murrayfield for that football match. That would represent one-fifth of the church-going population in Scotland. Uh, and of those who do attend church, that 350,000, 42% of them would be over the age of 65. Yet it was only back in 1955, thanks largely to a Billy Graham crusade at the Kelvin Hall in Glasgow, that church attendance in Scotland rose to over 50%, rather than the 6% we see today. And yet here we are. You're here in a church. What, 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 what do you make of that? How do you feel? Being in a church, lonely, isolated, forgotten, and historical curiosity. I imagine as folks are walking by and they look in and they see these people here, probably they would think that is just a decaying relic from the past. Well, if you ever feel like that as a Christian living Today, in today's society, imagine what it was like for the Jews who were living in exile around about the year 500 BC. 
They were there in exile uh, as a, a punishment. It's what God would say, said would happen if they broke his covenant. About a hundred years previously, uh, they'd been taken into exile. The temple that was so important to them had been destroyed along with the sacrifices and the priesthood. And their monarchy had been obliterated. So how on earth were they intended to function in exile when all the old markers had been destroyed? And more than that, in exile they still had these big questions as to whether they were still part of God's covenant people or had God forgotten them. Of course, some of them had returned to their ancestral homeland around about 535 BC, but most of them hadn't. And so they were asking the question, were they still under God's curse, or were they actually part of his covenant? And actually, that's really the question that's being addressed in the book of Esther that we're going to be considering over the next three Sunday evenings. Now, of that minority who left exile to return to their homeland in Palestine, there were books written to help them. We have them within our Bible, books such as 1 and 2 Chronicles, and Haggai, and Zechariah, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, books specially written for those returning. But the book of Esther that we are looking at is for those who remained. Remained in exile, remained far away from their promised land. For those who thought God had maybe forgotten them. Those for whom God seemed silent. That's why it's no accident that God's special name, Yahweh, and his general name, Elohim, are not mentioned at all in this book. There's no talk of God in Esther, which also actually explains why Calvin never preached on the book and why Mount Martin Luther denounced it for having, and I quote, though it's a translation from the German, too many heathen unnaturalities. So look, before we get into the first couple of chapters, let's try and set the scene, both chronologically and geographically. So, over the last three weeks, if you've been with us, you'll know that we've been looking at Jonah, who ministered in Nineveh in 786. And on the timeline uh, that you'll see on screen there, he is the far left-hand side. Now, Jonah was from the northern kingdom of Israel. That was comprised of, the, of 10 of the original 12 tribes of Israel. But that was conquered and the people redistributed to various territories in the year 722 BC. Now, as for the southern kingdom, we call it the kingdom of Judah. In fact, it was both the tribe of Judah, which incorporated the tribe of Benjamin. They came then under increasing attack from the new superpower on the block. That was the Babylonians. And there were mass deportations back to Babylonia, uh, beginning around uh, about 605 BC. And the city of Jerusalem and the temple were then destroyed in 586 BC, as had been promised. Uh, 
but, but then also, as had been promised by some of the prophets, the people were able to start returning to rebuild Jerusalem, going back, as we've already mentioned, around about the year 535 BC. But most didn't return. They'd made their home in Babylonia. And although that superpower was overthrown by the Persians under the rule of a guy called Cyrus, also known as Darius, in 539 BC, the Jewish exiles continued to settle down in that region, to build their homes, to establish their families. And it's Cyrus's son, Xerxes, who came to power in 486 BC to the far right now of our time chart. And again, the 86s are quite useful because that is 300 years after Jonah. It is 100 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. It is this Xerxes who is one of the central characters in our story, in the account we are looking at. So chronologically, that's what we're looking at. And geographically, we find that the action is centered in the city of Susa which again you can see there on the map on the far right side. Remember, you wouldn't have traveled in a straight line to get there. It would have been desert, really hard desert. You wouldn't have crossed that way. You'd have gone rather around the Fertile Crescent, which meant you would have uh, traveled up north and then uh, you'd have hit east. And uh, Susa was one of the four capital cities that was used by the Persian monarchy. Uh, and was where they traditionally spent their winters because summer temperatures were far too high in that region. So let's get into those first couple of chapters where we notice two things, just two points I have for us this evening. Number one, the weakness of human power. Number two, the strength of divine providence. So let's have a look at the weakness of human power because the story begins with the description of a remarkable Party. It is there in verses 3 to 8 of chapter 1. In the third year of his reign, Xerxes gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Wow, you say. What a party. And actually, that's precisely what we're meant to think. And thanks to a historian of the time called Herodotus, we actually know more about what was going on. Xerxes' dad, this Cyrus, this Darius, had failed in an attempt to defeat Greece and those troubled 
uh, troublesome Athenians. So Xerxes was trying to round up support and resources from various nobles in his kingdom so that he could attempt another invasion. And Herodotus writes about this great war council, what we have recorded for us here, where Xerxes deliberately and ostentatiously flaunts his wealth to show his nobles that he'd be able to richly reward them if they would join him on this military campaign. It was a show of power and riches, a bit like the military parades, you know, that, that would go through Red Square in Moscow or the military parades that, that go on in North Korea. The, the whole purpose of them is, hey, look at us, how powerful and strong we really are. And I tell you, such power can seem very threatening. It can seem overwhelming. What can we do against such forces? However, the reality known to the first readers of this account and to students of history is that despite all his vast resources, Xerxes failed to take Greece. He actually, after this, was held up for seven days at the Battle of Thermopylae by vastly smaller forces, made famous by the film the 300. I had to look hard to find a graphic that was suitable to uh, put on screen. If you've seen the film, you'll know what I'm talking about, how these 300 soldiers held off this massive army. If you haven't seen the film, don't worry about seeing it. Um, and he was then defeated, having been held up at Thermopylae, he was then defeated at sea at the Battle of Hellespont, before he then returned home, defeated. Greece had not been conquered. His empire had not been extended. But actually, Xerxes' weakness is foreshadowed in the events at that party when his queen, Queen Vashti, refused to respond to his command. Which leads us to our second point, which is the strength of divine providence. We've seen the weakness of human power. I want us to notice the strength of divine providence because something bigger is at play here than the success of a military campaign against Greece. It's nothing less than Almighty God protecting his people and fulfilling his promises. And the way he begins to do that is not through incredible displays of power, but through a series of events that we might call lucky. But behind which the wise reader will see the invisible hand of God at work. And there are three events that affect three people, Vashti, Esther, and Mordecai. So let's have a look at, at Vashti and her virtuous decision. I put a question mark on screen under the heading because I, I, whether it was a virtuous decision or not, we don't know. It seems it, it could have been. You see, on the last day of this week-long party, that itself was the culmination of six months of VIP hospitality, this happens. We read it in chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, 
we don't give the name, I won't give you the names, uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. You know, drunkenness can make some people do stupid things. And Xerxes was no exception. He's been showing off about lots of the things that he has. And then he decides that he wants to show off that actually he has the best-looking woman in the place. She is sort of the original trophy wife. So he orders that she should be brought in wearing her royal crown. And commentators are divided as to whether she should be wearing anything else. But Vashti refuses, which actually doesn't augur well for a king who's trying to show off how powerful he is. And so is set in motion a train of events leading to Vashti being removed from her role as queen. Now, it's at this point that many preachers start talking about the dangers of alcohol and the problem of divorce and the evils of sexism and patriarchy while setting Vashti up as some sort of virtuous proto-feminist. But that's not the point. That's not why these events are recorded for us here. It's not presenting us with examples that we should follow. Rather, we're to see that through this, Xerxes was one who wielded great power, but did so with great unpredictability and ignorance, which adds to the drama and tension as this story progresses. What could he do next? Things could so easily get overturned. And conversely, in the big story of Esther that we're looking at, we're to grasp that God used the wicked decisions of a king and the probably virtuous response of a pagan queen to get Esther into a position of influence with the royal court. And we'll come back to this later. So there is Vashti. Was it a a virtuous decision? It may have been, but God used it. Let's come to Esther, the second of our three. And her moral compromise. Again, was it a moral compromise? We'll talk about this later. Now, chronologically, what happened after this big party and the bust-up with Vashti, um, we know historically that Xerxes then left on his doomed military operation in Greece. But it was upon his return that it seems likely that we pick up the story in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the queen be king instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. I think that final line is probably one of the greatest understatements of Scripture. 
Yep, he says, how long do you think he had to think about such a suggestion? Now, we know that a beautiful girl called Esther was amongst those chosen and then brought to Susa. Her guardian was a civil servant named Mordecai. And he said to her, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. And what she had to go through might be considered, in our modern eyes, very demeaning. We, we read about it in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take in with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz. By the way, I think that is one of the great names in the Bible. Shazgaz. If, if you have yet to have children, just, you know, boy's name. I, I just love to have a Shazgaz wandering around. But anyway, um, another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So you see what this is all about. It's a sex contest. And the competitors have just one night to show that they're the best. Now, after that night, in which they do probably lose their virginity, they then go on to live in a harem, never to be married, but always available should the king decide to give one of them another go. Now, this is, this is vile. This is reprehensible to our modern sensibilities. Herding up women like cattle and using them like disposable sex toys. This is male power at its worst. By the way, if you think it was bad for women, we're also told that each year 500 young boys were rounded up to serve as eunuchs within the royal court and they were castrated to that end. And the thing is, we're actually not told anything about Esther's reaction to all of this. Did she go along with this? Or was she forced? Did she resist having sex with a Gentile man? It's actually unlikely from what we can read. So what are we to make about her decision-making or about the advice that Mordecai gave her? Look, is Esther a role model for all godly young women to follow? Now, once again, I have to say a variety of writers try to read their own prejudices back into Esther's actions. Some see her as a traitor to Vashti because she didn't uphold the uh, sort of sisterly code but played along with male privilege. Others blame herself for not killing herself to avoid ritual contamination. Others accuse her of betraying her heritage. But the point is this, we don't know. We're not told. Because ultimately the focus is on God's sovereign providence working through and with the decisions we make however good or bad those decisions may be. It's God who's at work for his glory. At times, despite what we do. 
So Esther's night with the king, for whatever reason, goes spectacularly well. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So there's Esther, and potentially her her moral compromise. God used it. The third one of these events, these lucky incidences, was with Mordecai. We're calling this, was it no, a fortunate coincidence. Before the narrative speeds up in chapters 3 to 8, there's still one final piece of the providential jigsaw that needs to be in place. And that comes about through another lucky coincidence. Verses 21 to 23 of chapter 2. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. And spoiler alert, this is a really important event around which the whole story hinges at the beginning of chapter 6. But just like what happened to Vashti and what happened to Esther, we're supposed to see the powerful hand of the invisible God in what seems to be a relatively minor event. It's only later, as we look back on things, that we see how important they were. So let me try and draw together a couple of lessons that we should take away from these opening two chapters. Two two applications. Number one, the first is this. God continues to work to fulfill all his promises. God continues to work to fulfill all his promises. Look, at times it might not look like it. At times it seems that God is silent and the enemy has won. At times the forces arrayed against us might seem incredibly powerful, and they seem to sweep all before them. It certainly seemed that way for Esther and Mordecai, who were little people in the midst of a powerful and wicked kingdom that was ruled over by a capricious pagan king, and yet they were used by God in ways they wouldn't have first seen. And here we are in the UK with a new Prime Minister. A man who seems to have similar appetites to that of Xerxes. A country where the most dangerous situation to be in is that of a baby in the womb. A land where the nature of marriage has been reinterpreted. A nation where holding certain values can threaten your job and career prospects. 
a place where you are not always free to express certain biblical convictions. And yet, and yet, God is still at work. Men and women are being saved. His grace shines out from the lives of those who follow him. In one providence after another, we see his hand at work. And we live by faith in the knowledge that God is directing the whole of world history, both the little events and the big events to bring in his children and to prepare for Christ's certain return. Our God reigns. Our God is working his purposes out. Probably the greatest demonstration of that was the coming of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our rescuer. How the Bible tells us at just the right time Christ was born. How did it come about? A thousand and one ways that God gloriously orchestrated so that Jesus was born there in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, and how that he lived for those 33 years or so, uh, and how he went to that cross, all part of God's plan and preparation so that sinners and failures and rebels like you and me could be saved and rescued. So God continues to work to fulfill all his promises. My second application, or the second point I want to make is this. We seek to live for Christ in an alien culture. We seek to live for Christ in an alien culture. You see, Mordecai and Esther had to confess they didn't live in a Jewish society. It wasn't characterized. They didn't have a Jewish king over them. They, they didn't have a temple there. They didn't have the rhythms of the temple practices. They weren't surrounded by a, a large, almost exclusive company of fellow adherents, of fellow Jews. And we no longer live in a society shaped by Christian practice and belief. Churches are closing down weekly, becoming coffee shops or tiring exhaust centers. Sunday seems no different to any other day. And yet, the challenge remains for believers to be distinct. Romans 12 verse 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4 verse 17 says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So we are to be different. So what does that look like? What does it mean to be distinct? What does it mean to live for Jesus today in a culture, in a society where all those Christian markers have disappeared? Does it mean we wear strange clothes from a previous century? Because that's what some do. Does it mean that we don't go to the cinema or theater, that we stand aside from these worldly activities and we want to show that we are Christians? Some believe that. Or that we don't drink alcohol. What does it look like? And actually, there will be a variety of answers to that question amongst us here. 
let alone the church, more widely. And indeed, if we are living in certain countries, would we conceal our Christian identity for safety reasons? Let me quote Karen Jobes from her immensely helpful commentary. She writes this, This is where the silence about Esther and Mordecai's character and spiritual fidelity becomes a powerful encouragement. Regardless of whether they always knew what the right choice was, or whether they had the best of motives, God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people of the Bible were flawed, often confused, and sometimes outright disobedient. We are no different from them. Yet, our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them, through us, and most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in evil ways. So my my brothers and sisters, our call is to live as obediently as we can in every situation to the best of our ability. You see, there is no excuse here for for sinful disobedience. Don't come to me and say, well, Andy, you you just say we've got to live here in this culture and it doesn't really matter what we do because God will overrule anyway. No, no, no. There's no excuse here for sinful disobedience, but we know well enough that we can get it wrong. And we should know well enough that others can sincerely get it wrong as well. So, we live in humble faith, knowing that our gracious God is even able to work out his purpose in people like us. Brothers, sisters, who knows what coincidence might crop up in your life this coming week? Who knows? The things that you're going to do, whether it's employment that you're in, whether it's living in a neighborhood, whether you're going on a holiday, some of the decisions you have to make, some of the people that you're going to speak to that you hadn't even planned, you don't know now what's going to happen, but My friends, my brothers, my sisters, understand this. God is working his purpose out, and the decisions that you make count. They are important. And God can use and will use for his glory what you do. May they be the right and helpful and best decisions you can make, but at times we'll get it wrong. But our gracious and our glorious God will work all things together for good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Our God reigns. And that gives us massive confidence as we go out into this world. God is reigning. God is going to save his people. And it doesn't matter how the rest of society operates. We're going to live for his glory knowing that he is at work. 
and, and understanding something of the privilege that even what we do, the little things we do, the little decisions that we make can be used for his praise and glory. So I go out there into this next week with absolute confidence in the God who is reigning, in the God who is ruling. And I'm going to live for his praise. And I'm going to live for his glory. And I'm going to use every opportunity to speak for Jesus and to live for Jesus and to show his grace in my life and even when I get it wrong, even when cowardice trips me up along the way, I can still rejoice that our God reigns. Let's pray.